You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. I associate myself as a musician, a visual musician, improvisational, jazz, uh, visual jazz. They're going to look in the mirror and they're going to be focused on different things. We all are. We're human. But um, that doesn't mean that they need to feel any less loved. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 237, Life as Art, airing for the first time on Sunday, April 3rd, 2016. Life informs art, and vice versa. As human creatures, we benefit from experiencing art as a way of helping us explore some of the larger questions we may find ourselves pondering. Today, we speak with internationally known Maine-based artist Eric Hopkins about how his art has been shaped by his interaction with the world. We also speak with Emma Wilson, Managing Director of Art Collector Maine and the Portland Art Gallery about an innovative project focusing on the body as a work of art. Thank you for joining us. Experienced chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Maine's seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. Today it is really my privilege and pleasure to have with me um, a renowned Maine artist, um, who I think if you've lived in Maine or really anywhere in the country for a while, you probably have seen something that he has done. It's quite beautiful work and in lots of different uh, media. This is Eric Hopkins, who is a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and who has taught at the Haystack Mountain School of Crafts, as well as many other places. Eric has exhibited at the Farnsworth Art Museum, the Portland Museum of Art, um, many galleries and other museums nationally, and also as exhibited as part of the Art in the Embassies program. Eric, it's really great to have you here today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Really great to be here. One of the things that, I have to start with this, one of the things that I love most about at least the paintings that you do is that there's a lot of blue in them, and blue is one of my favorite colors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when I was a kid, the space program was just starting, and in, uh, I think it was 1961, Yuri Gagarin went up for a little little shot, and he looked back and said, the Earth is blue, and he was the first guy off the planet, in a way, not just on, in a plane, but he was orbiting the planet, and blue is a dominant color in, in this world, in this planet, both the sky and the water reflecting it. Uh, it's a pretty important spectrum part, part of the spectrum. And you actually look at the Earth in a way that not everybody has the opportunity to look at it, unless we spend a lot of time ourselves in flying commercially, or maybe we are fighter pilots or whatever. But, yeah. but you actually, on purpose, go up in the air and you look at the Earth from above. Right. Yeah, like a bird. 
like a bird. Or like the big guy in the sky, the God's eye view, bird's yeah. eye view. Uh, sometimes people say, oh, you really fly high enough to see the curvature of the earth? And I say, yeah, I could see the curvature of the earth right here in this room, even in the closet. Because guess what? I see it with my eyes. My eyeballs are round. And as humans, we've let that roundness of life, the connectivity of life go, and we draw straight lines, and we isolate everything with straight lines and little boxes and everything. So I like to think of the roundness as well. You spend a considerable amount of time working with glass, mm -hmm. and obviously there's some roundness associated with glass. Right. Not every artist wants to go in that direction. Why was that important to you? Um, I probably was a little rebellious at times growing up, and I was told not to play with fire and not to break glass. <laughs> so what could I do? I remember we built, like my brothers and cousins and I would go camping 10, 9, 10, 11 years old, build these huge hellacious bonfires way back when Coke was made in glass, was stored in glass bottles, real thick greenish glass bottles. And we'd drink the Coke and put them by the fire and they'd kind of melt and kind of sag around. They'd take sticks and poke it. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. And then eventually I was a night watchman at Haystack School of Crafts when Erwin Eich, a German glassblower, was there. And I saw blowing, blown glass for the first time. And I thought, wow, that's, that's for me. <laughs> so I did it. And uh, my first piece of glass was I gave to my 104-year-old grandmother for her birthday. <laughs> it was this awful blob of glass, but it was, I did it. You know, it, was, it was really fun. So. so not everybody would choose to say go up in the air or experiment with fire and things that break or do things that are can for some people be very scary. You don't seem to be scared by these things. Can't help it. It's fun. It's alive, you know, being alive and moving. And I think when my brother drowned, my five-year-old brother drowned, and I, when I was 10 and I saw his wet, dead body there laying still, he shared a room, we shared a bedroom together, and he was still. He'd stop moving. And I realized at that point, very, very distinctly, a memory, uh, not even a memory, but th the visual is very strong. But I realized eventually, I'm not gonna do that. I wanna keep moving. As long as I'm moving, I'm alive, and I, want, I choose life choose to be alive. And that's really important. Also, the space program was going on. It's not a flat Earth society. Remember, Christopher Columbus was going to sail over the edge of the world. And uh, so I, as a kid and growing up on an island, I thought a lot about what's over the edge. And so that sense of, of movement, of space, of this, this blue island, Earth, going around the sun, that's pretty important stuff. So there are all these movements going on, and I didn't know much about physics, but uh, 
and science in particular. I have a science concept mind, but not the not the measuring all the numbers and the realities formulas. But I remember seeing those scientists on the on their chalkboards saying we get out of Earth's gravity and the, the, this way and that way, then we'll get the get the moon's gravity and pull around. So that was all about the timing, time and space, and movement through space, through time. Kind of heady, heavy ideas, but that's at the basis of a lot of what I do. And uh, I ended up at Montserrat School of Visual Arts in Beverly, Mass, and studied with a guy, Paul Scott, who had studied every day for seven years with Hans Hoffman. And he was studying, we talked about the push-pull of that flat, two-dimensional plane and making it come alive through movement and on that, on that dumb, white, dead, flat, white space. So to activate it, bring it to life conceptually, visually, was real important for me. One of the pieces that I like in this book that Carl Little has written um, called Eric Hopkins Above and Beyond is a very simple cloudscape. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I, I like a lot of your pieces, many of which are blue. This one just happens to be the clouds themselves. But there's something really almost um, simultaneously, I guess, mystical and whimsical. It's as if you you are, you take things seriously, but don't take things seriously. Mm-hmm. It's called balance. That's what it's all about, balance, you know health and wealth and wise and balance and uh, I think a lot and when I'm working painting or whatever I don't think a lot I just get rid of that damn old brain mind get it out of there it's not no place for it it's like um, uh, you know you can practice your scales as a musician I, I, I how would you say I associate myself as a musician visual musician, improvisational, jazz, uh, visual jazz, and there's a lot of structure there. And there's, you have to think about that structure. There's, there's something very strong and very real, and then you take off. You, you go off in this free form, which really gets to the essence of things. And that's what I think you're talking about. How, yeah, the study is, is definitely there. There's a lot of thought going on behind it but the real true expression it's like you know breathing how do you think about that can you hold your breath for 30 seconds right now um i can't and we're not gonna do it on the radio no it doesn't make very good radio anyway but but that sense that so much of if we had to think about holding our breath and not breathing it would be pretty difficult so we naturally breathe all, our, all these parts of our brain are working for us, keeping us ticking as is. And so I think that's my one goal, one of many goals, is to be natural, like breathing. It's interesting to see some of the pieces that you've um, done because I wouldn't necessarily think of trees, perhaps, looking the way that you've created them, but then... Once I see them, I think, well, of course, of course they look that way. I mean, they can look many other ways, mm-hmm. but of course they look the way that you've 
you've made them. It doesn't seem as if you need to be hemmed in by what other artists have created as trees. No, I again, a lot of that comes from flying and breaking down things into simple elements. And I think that's part of that Paul Scott, Hans Hoffen thing, is just breaking it down into very essential, simple, basic shapes, lines, colors, elements, elements, elemental rhythms, patterns. And flying, I notice there are all these pointy conifer trees. And in a plane, you want to stay out of those pointy, toothy type trees, alligator tooth trees. And then at the same time, the deciduous trees come up from one point and arc out. So it's just in terms of breaking down those two basic kinds of trees. It's like the, the, the point at the top and then the point at the bottom with the arc on the top or, or numerous arcs with the branches. So that's some of what I do, try to break it down into real essence, real elemental rhythms and patterns. You've also been a teacher. Mm-hmm. How do you help the people that are learning from you understand some of the concepts that you're describing to me? Uh, mostly I tell them to forget everything they've been taught. Get on a big plane and throw it all out the window. You know, you can learn. you got the stuff already. You were born with it. You learned it. Kids go to school. They get taught to not trust themselves, to not do what's, into, what's natural. And um, I get in trouble sometimes. But my uh, one son who engineer, went to Maine Maritime Academy, got out three and a half years, and I get ranting on schools and how they wreck kids and stuff. And he looks at me and he says, Dad, I couldn't have done what I did if I hadn't gone to school. And so I try to, again, balance is really important. Man, I couldn't stand school. That was the worst thing to do. Stick a kid in a box with a bunch of other kids in rows and get yeah, knuckle slap and not doing the right thing. Man, it's just not not good. Well, I must say you are the only guest we've ever had who took off his shoes and socks before he sat down to talk with us. Well, I need to be in touch with the earth. Yes, uh, and the wood, the trees, the metal. <laughs> yeah. And, and isn't that interesting that that's so important to you? And I can imagine that that would not translate well into a classroom setting. No, not at all. I get in trouble a lot, or used to. Now I get the license a little bit more. So Why do you think that is? Because uh, just do. Somehow you get away with things that you never got away with. Well, before. yeah, I mean, teachers in school, I, sorry, teachers, I... A lot of teachers, um, there are a lot of good teachers that have really learned a lot of things and and taught me things. And particularly coming back around to Maine and mentors are a different form of teachers. And I think that's some of what I've been doing more informally as a mentor by putting things on the wall, by talking on radios and in back alleys and beaches and rocks and places. Uh, the importance of mentors and a little kid about this tall in the Thorndike Hotel in Rockland standing with my brothers in a rainy day the ferry boat didn't go looking at these black boxes with all these weird shapes 
all organized somehow. Kind of laughing at him, but knowing that these are this is elevated high art. And this was Louise Nevelson, her brother's hotel. And here I am, this little kid, looking at these organized junk, all painted black, and Louise Nevelson, right here in Rockland, Maine. I, I thought she was, as I grew up, I thought she was like this rock star of art. And a woman, it was natural. I didn't, didn't think there was any real gender specificity to being an artist, or, because she's a woman she couldn't or could be an artist. It didn't make any difference. Um, but then I found out later, in the 70s, 80s, that she was just getting going. You know, I'm talking about in the 50s. Uh, getting some some notoriety for her her work, and so that importance of mentoring is really important. Blackie Langley uh, down the street in Cushing, I saw his wood pieces. There's this other guy uh, at the Farnsworth Museum growing up. Did these lot of shingles, kind of gray, kind of bleak looking stuff. An old lady sprawled out in a blueberry field and. Um, you know, that was kind of real too, kind of very realistic, arty kind of thing, but I didn't relate to that quite as much. That's Andy Wyeth. And uh, so those are kind of pretty broad extremes of teaching right there in basically in Rockland, Maine. And, and growing up around that, these are real people. I remember I did a talk somewhere, I think in New York City, and this antique woman came up to me afterwards shaking and just, you know, pretty pretty shriveled and old, middle around, long time. She said, oh dear, I'm so envious of you. So I grew up and every Saturday, my parents took me to the Metropolitan Museum and all these places and we studied Egyptians and all this and that. She said, but you got to study real people. You, you lived with real artists, real live artists, contemporary artists of right now, and I, I wish I could have done that. And I thought, hey, Maine is full. I think I can go maybe exaggerate a little, but I think Maine has the, the probably besides New York City, the biggest uh, artistic, the broadest artistic community of any state in the in union, very specifically over, over time, from the Native Americans to the Thomas Hart. Uh, to, uh, oh, to you know the Frederick Church and those guys right on up through in the Monhegans and all the different art camps around. It's pretty amazing, and they all you know, were kind of East Coast, Philadelphia, New York, Boston school coming here. So that's I think that's real a big part of my teaching is not formal, but as being mentored and mentoring. The importance of passing that along. So it's not that you aren't a fan of education per se, just maybe not the formal structure of education that maybe we all think of when we think of going to school. Oh, I love education. I love learning. I can't. Don't get me wrong. There, it's just schools I don't like. And my, you know, I know there are a lot of great work in schools right now. Absolutely phenomenal. Great stuff. 
And you also took some of these classes yourself. Yeah. From what I understand, yeah. you took classes in geology yeah. and botany and other things that informed your art. That yeah, science at Brown. I took Brown University courses when I was at RISD, and uh, yeah. So I think it's. I think when you cram a poor little kid into a classroom when they don't want to be there, that's kind of a, a more negative aspect. And uh, but I'm not anti-school or anti-education at all. But just has to be appropriate, you know. Some people learn one way, and some people learn other ways. And I think this we need to acknowledge all of that. How important that so many different ways of learning and doing. And you, your favorite color is blue. Mine's red. Well, actually, <laughs> red is an equally favorite color of mine. <laughs> okay. Blue was my favorite color for probably the first thirty two years of my life and yep. I never really cared for red yeah and then all of a sudden I really enjoyed red so it's interesting also that things can shift that way yeah yeah it's important. a lot of times kids will come in and I did a gallery talk what's your favorite color they expect blue I wear blue jeans and blue shirts a lot of times and red and they <laughs> Which I, is? get it's it's like don't I don't want to be typecast with anything I like green I like you know, all my full spectrum. I'm a full spectrum guy. I like them all. Well, and in fact, before we went on the air, you said, I don't want to be known as a painter. Yeah. I'm an artist. Yeah. So I don't want to be constricted because yeah. I want to be able to use paint, but also words. Yeah. Yeah. And anything that I would like to use to, to be an artist. Don't want to be constrained. Yeah. So that's pretty that's pretty important and also to acknowledge there's some people that love to have assignments and to be doing this 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 late deadlines and all that so you have three children one of whom has passed away now mm -hmm. and two stepchildren right at least one of them is an engineer mm -hmm. you haven't really talked about the other ones no was there any is there any artistic yeah, my daughter Eva is living here in Portland right now, and she's um, she's a musician, drama artist, independent cuss, like her old dad <laughs> at the same time, and wants uh, to get more in the in the medical field. Some uh, she went to Alfred University in Syracuse. In Syracuse, she was in uh, communication and rhetorical studies, and. Uh, she had a part-time job, temp agency job with a health company, insurance company, and she was calling up people, bugging people at their mealtimes about their health care. And uh, I said, well, what's that like? She said, well, you know, sometimes you get some, today I had two really, really tough ones. And uh, she said, but I let them, let them rant. I probably took a little longer than we were supposed to, but they left happy. And I said, you know, I think that rhetorical studies helped. <laughs> so. So maybe art isn't just mm, the visual. Maybe there's also art in conversation. Yeah. And yeah. Art in living. I think that's the big thing. Every, you know, they talk about S-T-E-M, science, technology, engineering, math. I throw an A in there. Go from STEM to STEAM. Science, technology, art, engineering, and math. And the same thing with the, you know, the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. 
the, the first one, the first R begins with A in its art. So that's how I, that's, I'm going for the four arts, four R's. Your son passed away three years ago. Right. So that's not that long. No, it's, uh, it was pretty, pretty tough. He was, he was independent too. Um, very, uh, we're very connected right now, but he was, had been painting lobster buoys in a small confined area with nasty paints, been drinking and driving his truck fast and drove off the road and rolled and died. And uh, basically was, died doing what he loved doing. And I was living on Mount Desert at the time, and uh, my former wife called from North, this was on North Haven, and she called and said he'd been in an accident, didn't know any details. But I sat there in front of my fireplace, and I just got this download, I wouldn't call it a voice, but it was a message. Your daredevil child is a grown-up angel tonight. And I knew, I just knew he'd, he'd gone and left this body and this planet as such. And I've uh, been connected with him ever since. We were always connected. And uh, he, he was a chip off the old block for sure. And um, I, I write a lot. And so I was, one day, a couple months later, I was writing and, and uh, I said, geez, have, kind of addressing him in the writing and said, geez, I'd like to, uh, I've been doing all this writing stuff for five decades, you know, damn, the decades are going by fast, you know, and you only, only were there for two of them. Got any bright ideas on how I can organize this writing and do a book or something like that? Hey, Ev, I'd like to dedicate it to you. Boom! Bam! You're dead. Right. Dedicate it to you, to, to me. Dedicate it to me, like I'm dead. Hey, I'm not dead. I'm right here with you. Can you feel the goosebumps? You know I'm right here, right? So go do this, go do that. It says, you know, I didn't get to be a dad before I left. He doesn't call it dead, doesn't like that. Left is what, is, is, is the more appropriate terminology for the others. And, uh, so he said, go do this stuff. Well, I, I didn't get to be a dad, but I'll tell you what, I'll dad you. <laughs> Dadding is a verb. <laughs> so I've, I've had that, that sense of some guidance, some, some subtle, some blatant. And uh, got the message there, the, the leavers and the lefters. <laughs> now he, he left, he, he was a lever. He, he'd left the, the planet. And we're the lefters, we're, we're left here. And so there's that aspect. And uh, my father died in 79. And in the show, there's some fish paintings that uh, come back at, to, after he died. And kind of tying in a lot of these different aspects. He, he was, I, I was doing these blown glass fish, painted fish, different things. And he was kind of out of it on his deathbed. And but checking me out before he checked out. And I told him I was doing this blown glass fish and stuff and shells. He said, you know, I got you going on that. And he had a party fishing boat. I went fishing with him, caught my first fish, codfish, and uh, kind of take it home, show my mother all puffed up proud. And it was just 
old dead gray fish. She'd seen a lot of them. And so I was kind of disappointed that she wasn't more enthusiastic. So I painted right on the fish with my poster paints. And after a while, a few days, she said, you know, you gotta throw that away, it stinks. My like, oh, it stinks? <laughs> Come on, Mom. So I painted fish on paper, and he told me that story. I'd totally forgotten about it. He went and died, and I went back to Providence where I was living and did all these lobster buoy paint fish images on paper, and then brought them back to life with color. And so that's, um, kind of a continuity, a sense of, of life and death, and it, it's all part of it. It's all part of the deal. And I think you asked me a question that I got off on a tangent with. No. Can you believe it? I think no. Never. <laughs> I think you answered the question. Yeah. Okay. The continuity that you're working with right now, actually, um, we're fortunate because you've agreed to do a show with the Portland art gallery and the new expansion into um, our bigger space. This is going to take place between April, I believe it's opening April 7th and mm. into the beginning of May. This is a, it's a big deal for us. Yeah, we, big deal for me too. Well, and I wondered yeah. about that. Yeah. This is, I mean, you brought in this beautiful piece that is hanging right now in the conference room of um, 75 Market Street Bay Media. It's like a three-dimensional piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I've ever, I've ever seen a piece quite like it, the way that you've done the kind of land slash skyscape. Um, it's really been a pleasure to spend time with you today. We've been speaking with Eric Hopkins, who is really um, nationally and internationally known as an artist of many different sorts and um, native of um, North Haven and Rockland. And really proud to have you be a fellow member of the great state of Maine and thank you for coming in and talking to me today. Well thank you it's great being here and I could go on and you can go on and we will we'll continue. Yes maybe we'll have you come back again okay. another day. <laughs> well and I just like to say to everyone look inside reflect what's inside and what's outside as well keep the balance trust don't rust. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. It's really fun to have people in the studio with me who um, I just I just like as human beings and who are also my friends. But also I know the new pretty high quality um, uh, community movers and shakers. And I think this individual, you will listen to her and you will understand why I feel so strongly about her. This is Emma Wilson. She is a managing director of Art Collector Maine and also a fellow Yarmithian. I don't know that that's, that's right. actually a word, but citizen of, of Yarmouth. <laughs> of course yes. it is. Thanks for coming in, Emma. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So, Emma, you and I have known each other for quite a while, and I've always been interested in your background and how you came to be doing the work that you're doing with Art Collector Maine, because you've done a lot of other things, mm-hmm. social work, you've worked within mm-hmm. the psychiatric field, you've moved around a lot as a military spouse. 
Walk me through the process of how it is that you came to be the managing director at Art Collector Maine. That's a great question. <laughs> so I think that the, um, uh, so where do I start? The, uh, my journey, as you, as you referenced, you know, definitely starting in the social work field and then moving around the country quite a bit, you know, through a period of time for over the course of 12 years and when um, living in almost every part of the region and, and really always valuing my work with kids and, and um, with youth and children and, and their families. But then when I was living in the South in the Bible Belt, I got um, sort of reconnected with the arts in a way that um, was very important to me, um, was going back into the work field after having three young children and being with them. And the arts were just always a place where it felt safe, I felt comfortable, I felt like there were people that were interested in having dialogue about things that were relevant and meaningful in their life that I agreed with and, or disagreed with, it didn't matter. And so, and, and actually have family members who are artists and living supporting artists. Um, so I came to Maine and became very involved with the Portland Museum of Art, worked there, uh, was part of their docent program, and it felt really good, but then was starting to miss the um, the teenage, you know, population and sort of, and then it was offered an opportunity to do development work with Wayfinder Schools, which is a wonderful program that works with teen parents and, and kids at really high risk of not completing high school. So I found a lot of pleasure and satisfaction with working um, with them and also became more and more involved with the broader community of donors at that time. And and just through the experience in being in Maine since 2007, everybody's connected, and it just constantly amazes me how that how that happens. And through having a conversation with, with Kevin um, Thomas, became aware of an opportunity around returning to work within the arts, but also be able to continue to work with making you know, furthering connections and supporting the arts um, felt like a really good opportunity and a good fit in that moment in time. So so that happened last August, and so that's where I am. <laughs> Emma, you're from New Jersey originally. I am, yeah, Jersey girl. You went to college in New York State. I did. Um, your education was in social work. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to do that? So I went to BU for social work. I had... Um, my undergrad degree was in sociology. Certainly relationships and connections were always, you know, connecting with people were always interesting to me, how people, fun you know, think, work together. Social work was a more interesting field for me because it's, to me, it was all about systems working together and sort of strengthening the individual. And so how those strength, how those systems work together was more um, in line with the way that I seem to practice. And so that's how I decided to go to social work school and then from there worked in a psychiatric community and, and in the education um, systems as well. So that was why, that was why. So yeah. you started your education um, in New York State doing sociology yeah. as an undergraduate. Yeah. And that worked its way into a desire to do some mm -hmm. work in the social work field. Yeah. It's not an easy field. No, it's not. There's a lot of a lot of challenges um, that are prevalent in our society still, and that were there then. And so, um, but I really am drawn to trying to help when I can, try to become civically engaged, and and really wanting to participate, and not just watch it happening around me, but wanting to participate. So that is definitely. Um, what compelled me, I think, to stay with it. People are amazing. They have amazing stories. They're just so, um, it's just an honor and a privilege when you get to know somebody's person, you know, to, to know their life. So that was. Was there anything in your family that any sort of 
You said you have artists in your family. I have artists in my family. So, I, yeah, I come from the most dysfunctional family in the universe. But, no, I definitely have. And you can leave that on the tape. They all, we all know it. <laughs> so, no, it's not the most dysfunctional. But we definitely, I had uh, an interesting upbringing. Um, I'm one of four girls. My parents split when I was in third grade. They finally divorced when I was in ninth. There was a lot of, a lot of challenges that we um, encountered during that time period. So I think that that certainly there were people in my life that were very helpful. It wasn't formal as a therapist or whatever it might be, but it was a youth group or a teacher or some some adults in my life that were making sure that 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 I knew that I was cared about. And my, my parents, of course, as well, to, to the best of their ability. But um, I think that um, certainly influenced me wanting to be able to be an adult in another person's life to be able to show them that they care about them so well it's interesting as I asked that question I was thinking she's gonna say like all my siblings were social workers I've (laughs) never had anybody say I have the most dysfunctional family in the world (laughs) well no and and that's that's a strong statement I take I shouldn't retract that but no my sisters and I interestingly one's an artist one's a lawyer one's a journalist and a social worker. So it's just, we're an interesting combination. So, yeah. Well, and actually, I think the fact that you can say that we're dysfunctional, but you seem to still have a lot of love for them. Oh, and absolutely. I know that you're very close to them. Oh, absolutely. And so yeah. I, I, I like the fact that it's it doesn't have to stand mm-hmm. as being a right. negative and rooted in some sort of dysfunction. It, it evolves. really doesn't. It doesn't. And we all have, you know, I always, I've said it already once today, but, you know, we all have these stories, and I think that it, you ha- it's in order to embrace it. And the more that I tried to push away from my story and who, it, the, the further away I became from who I am, and, and it just, I don't think in the end that that's necessarily the way that I'm the most healthy, you know, that, that where I'm, you know, in my best. So, so I think that really embracing it, understanding it, laughing about it with my family, um, you know, crying about it, whatever it might be that we need to do to sort of process and go through. And now our parents are aging, you know, we're going through this whole next step. And um, just how we how we work through that process together is really important. So my sisters are absolutely the closest people in my life. There's no way that, you know, your siblings are have the most closely shared experience. And I just only hope that my kids feel the same way about each other at some point if they don't already. <laughs> so we'll see. Well, I love the fact that when you were in Georgia, you found your group, mm-hmm. which I think is really important for all of us yeah. to gravitate towards kind of like-minded individuals who make us feel connected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not a judgment on other people who aren't like-minded. It's more yeah. like, how do I thrive in this world? Yeah. And for you, the group was people in the arts. It was definitely people in the arts. And then also closest friends were definitely... Um, the political science instructor or director for the local university, you know, just a lot of people that were the, where we lived in Georgia was very much um, subdivisions and cul-de-sacs and whatnot and pools, you know, a lot of activities centered around pools for the kids, you know, in, in those neighborhoods. Um, and so you learned, you know, you le- I was probably most most aware of what was going on in the world at that time. I mean, granted, had a husband in the military. We were at war. It was, you know, there was a lot to be paying attention to and a lot to be worried about. I will say that even if I didn't agree politically with 80% of my neighbors, I also felt extremely cared for, especially when my husband at that time was deployed and I had these three children and they were, and it was petrifying for all of us, but there was a care and condition. And even though there's a part of me that completely 
um, has a lot of issues around the military, to drive onto the base at that time was the most comforting place that I could possibly be. So, you know, it's just ironic, but it's also... So, but, but the other part of it, my head part, I mean, that really sort of took care of my heart, my kids and, and part, but my head part needed to be connecting with people that I could have conversations with, and that's where the work really came into play with the, with the, with the arts. And so um, I needed that outlet. So. so you worked at the Portland Museum of Art, and, and then you found yourself taking a bit of a right turn and mm-hmm. working with the Wayfinder School, mm-hmm. um, which has evolved from the community schools, which was yeah. up on the coast and now is in New Gloucester. Right. It was, well, it was the community schools was in, it was in Camden and Opportunity Farm was in New Gloucester and they merged and became the community schools at Opportunity Farm and Camden and then rebranded to Wayfinder Schools with two different campuses. So tell me about that work. Tell me about the group that you are um, serving. Yeah, so the group, um, so there's two two schools within Wayfinder. Um, there's the passage or two programs, passages program, which which works with teen parents throughout the state. They're involved in almost every county of the state, and that's where teachers deliver the school to the students. There's so many barriers to teen parents being able to complete um, school. They can't take their babies on the school bus. They can't. They're ostracized for so many different reasons, um, and it's hard. So this way, it's it's like homeschooling essentially. Um, but really to be able to propel these young parents to be able to be high school graduates is such a significant marker for their future. So we really tried hard, or you know, when I was working there, the, the teachers just worked so hard with, um, with their students. Um, the residential program, there's a campus in Camden and there's a campus in New Gloucester where it was Opportunity Farm for years. And they work with students at a residential, so the kids live there um, and are cared for by adults and have are really expected to engage in conversation and in relationships and that being the tool to help them heal and to be able to help them to ultimately graduate. So and there's a a huge sort of hands-on experiential component to the curriculum um, and they also are very much met where their individual needs are in terms of their academics because it's a small program the teachers are able to really meet with them where they need to be and and with that they're they're able to learn. Um, so it's amazing when you reduce those barriers how that happens. So yeah, so it's really it's a wonderful program. And um, Joseph Huffnagel runs the residential program, and Martha Kemp runs the passages program, and they just they just work so hard. <laughs> so um, my hat goes off to them. And and I was offered an opportunity to come in. As, uh, a friend of mine, Patsy, was uh, working there as a development director at the time, and then she had been left, and I stayed on. So and then we were lucky enough to bring you into our fold yeah. here at 75 Market Street with Art yes. Collector Maine, and you've been yes. working with the Portland Art Gallery and the gallery yep. at the Grand down in Kenny Bunk. Mm-hmm. So you're back in the arts. I'm back in the arts. And yep. you're watching Andrea King from Aristel give a mm-hmm. talk at Maine Live last yep. fall, and she was discussing something that you really connected with. Yeah, yeah, she was. I mean, she definitely was discussing body image and the issue around here I just loved the idea I had no preconceived notions around Andrea I'd, I'd never met her I'd never seen her I just didn't really know much about her business but here was this feminist businesswoman you know talking about having this fine lingerie um, business but also just really supporting this conversation about reducing you know the negative connotations around body image and just what that means and and she spoke about it was very personal for me in the sense that growing up it was very much 
you could be beautiful if you could that was the, that was always the line and it was always around body image it was always around presentation and it was it was it was not nice <laughs> it was really um not something that you say to a child or that you even feel for a child i think and so um i and then she spoke about her her own children and that certainly resonated for me i have a 16 year old an 18 year old i have a 14 year old son uh, the other two are daughters and and knowing that that was an it, an issue growing as they've been growing up that I wanted to make sure to pay attention to. And so, um, sorry about that. My language has been very intentional with them as they've grown up because the language felt so hurtful to me growing up. So to hear her, to see her on the stage and just lending voice to that, um, in a way that was kind of cool. Like, you know, it was a different angle. Um, I just, I just loved it. And so was eager to follow up in conversation with her, just as a person, but then also just to see if there was an opportunity for us to, to do something together through the galleries. And that so. opportunity led to an, an event called Everybody is a Work of Art, yeah. which included um, women yeah. walking around in the lovely lingerie in, their lovely in February. Lingerie. Exactly. In Maine. In Why Maine. <laughs> into your art gallery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is was really great. Which is really great. And mm-hmm. in no small part because these were women who had a wide range of body shapes, mm-hmm. wide range of ages. Yeah. Um, they didn't need to be the traditionally um, sized mm-hmm. women. Right. They were all beautiful because they were all fitted with the absolute right lingerie mm-hmm. for them, and they all went out there and were completely self-confident. Yeah, which was really great to see. And so much of Andrea's work is around that. You know, it was about celebrating all ages, all shapes, all sizes, and, and by celebrating what makes you feel good for yourself and to increase that self-confidence. So I think that the fashion show piece of it came together in such a really wonderful way, an authentic way, just because it just supported her brand of what she, you know, really wants her business to be and also just supports the idea that everybody is a work of art and that is so um, important for us all to, to know and believe. So so yeah, there was a pregnant, you know, woman and, and people of all and it which I just it was just a lot of fun. It was um, but it also had a uh, art to me is such an important um, platform that we have available to us to have conversations that's about anything that's relevant in our lives and so you know we intentionally set up the gallery with different works of art that represented human form and they were in all shapes you know sizes and and ages in those sculptures as well and um, that sort of set the stage. We didn't need to be in the foreground at that point. We were somewhat in the background, but it, but the, the gallery to be able to use as a forum for this type of conversation or this type of programming is really um, where I would love to see the direction to continue to grow. Um, anytime we can get people in the gallery that, you know, we, we want that, obviously, or a business. Um, we want to support our artists through our business, but um, this is another piece of having a space in Portland that's that, that can be made available for really important community dialogue. So, yeah. There's been a lot of conversation lately around um, body image and in, mm-hmm. in advertising and in the media. There was a yeah. big Dove campaign that tried to bring in oh, normal, yeah. quote, normal or average size women. Yeah. And there's been a lot of things about fat shaming and mm-hmm. thin shaming. And there's a lot of stuff going on in social media. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great because it generates conversation, but at the same time, I, I wonder if the conversation is entirely productive. 
You hope so, <laughs> or does it just draw more attention to those things, and so therefore it's if, what the next step might be. I asked my daughter, actually the 16-year-old daughter, um, in sort of anticipation of this conversation, and also along the way, because they knew I was planning the, the event with, with Andrea, and she said social media is definitely, I mean, it, it used to be magazines and whatnot, but social media is such the, the area where it, it, it hurts. There, She's talked about in Instagram how... Um, you know, girls are, are watching what models the boys are following and vice versa. And it's not just about the girls um, worrying about themselves. It's also these boys who are drinking protein powders and, and trying to bulk themselves up and become more masculine and more um, the ideal of whatever the girls are paying attention to on the Instagram. And so um, I don't know what the answer is except to continue to have that dialogue or to continue to open those doors or to continue having people living in people doing the work like like Andrea's been doing but it's it's important um not sure if I have more to say about that <laughs> except that, yeah it's it's social media is just a big different animal than um but yeah no it's a, it is and it's an interesting conundrum because um I think we have made some strides forward mm-hmm. I believe sports Illustr- illustrated swimsuit issue has a size 16 model on one yeah. of the covers and now barbie does too right and barbie has changed her (laughs) shape and i i think that you're also um and i believe that people who are who have been traditionally called plus size models Mm -hmm. are now asking that they just be called models right so i think that there is some there is some movement in that direction Mm -hmm. but it's hard because there is still a lot out there that is basically very thin women who are wearing clothes in a way that most of the rest of us can't pull off right so it's so I, I you know I wonder about this conversation about how how we move this forward because sometimes mm-hmm. when you draw too much attention to it it becomes the mm-hmm. thing that attracts people rather than right. educates them right and yeah. I don't have any answers that's why I'm yeah. kind of talking out loud with you yeah. about this yeah yeah and I'm realizing I don't really have that answer either except for I think that the dialogue is truly important and it is refreshing that it's become more of a forefront but um, but then you wonder if attitudes really, really changed. I mean, I could segue into something that's totally different in terms of the political world right now. But, you know, I think that it's it's just really um, have the attitudes really fundamentally changed. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But if we continue to work with our kids to raise, you know, confident, um, not expected to have be per- perfect people, um, then perhaps that's the biggest the biggest step in the direction of it. Well, I think the art world is actually the perfect place to mm-hmm. be having this conversation because artists focus on the things yeah. that they feel compelled to focus on. And some of them do it because it's what will sell, but some of them really do it because of mm-hmm. their interest in whatever that media mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about Eric Hopkins and the pieces he's been doing lately, which are kind of three-dimensional mm-hmm. pieces, mm-hmm. and I know he's coming to the art gallery he's gonna be, very yeah. soon. He's going to be coming on April 1st, or, or April, April 7th is the opening, so we're excited. So, so yeah, that's, and, and I, and so yes, anybody who's an Eric Hopkins fan, I definitely mm-hmm. am, you should mm-hmm. show up for that art gallery yeah. opening. And also, I think to be able to see that there's such a broad variety, you can, you can love photography as an mm-hmm. art, you can love music as an art, you can love the visual arts. 
and to, to know that those are reflecting something inside of the people who are creating them and that there is such a rainbow of possibilities yeah. that exist within humans and also the forms that humans themselves take. Well, I also think that, ironically, art is a blank screen. And so it's what you project onto it. So you could be projecting onto a, a sculpture of a human form or it could be an Eric Hopkins piece or whatever it might be, but it is something that you can use as a tool or a way of understanding yourself better or engage in conversation with other people about a topic. And it is certainly, art has definitely, um, you know, through the centuries, it has communicated what the ideal human form ha has been and it's changed and it's evolved and, and um, at different times, but I do fundamentally believe that art has always been able to give us a form or a platform to to have conversations and to, to be able to move forward. Yeah. Well, one of the best things about my job in this, um, working with 75 Market Street, Love Maine Radio, Maine Magazine, is actually my exposure to art. Mm -hmm. And having been yeah, a purely science-oriented person yep. for so many years, to be um, There's a direct link, Lisa. <laughs> well, and this is why I love your story because yeah. I think we are learning more and more that, you know, the cro there's crossover. The mm -hmm. brain pathways they don't. There's not mm -hmm. left brain, right brain. Yeah. There are things that jump back and forth between right. the hemispheres, and yeah. that you can start out being a social work major or mm -hmm. social work master student mm -hmm. at Boston University as you did, mm -hmm. and then jump to fast forward to the current day and be the manager for um, our collector Maine. And it all still makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yep, there is a path. Mm -hmm. And to path. use really whatever form you have. If right. you are interested in body image and you're interesting, interested in um, making sure you have healthy young people, right. then let's show them that yeah. we can have an art show where women right. of all different sizes, and maybe someday men, we just didn't maybe happen someday. to have the have ones any. for Although volunteering. Although I think Chris would have been able to help us with that. Yes, our, our MC Chris <laughs> cast, I'm sure, would have jumped <laughs> yeah, in there yeah. to be a male he model. Was the, when, once, once Chris was on board as being the MC, you just really felt as though the event was going to pull together and have its, 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 best, its best place. You know, I think that that whole idea around perfection is something that we that we have so many expectations out of our kids and I, I, I love the community in which I live of Yarmouth I love the school district I have nothing but respect I think the teachers understand the pressure that our kids are under better than almost anybody because they're they're, they're, you know, we get so proud of our, you know, scores on U.S. News World Report, but that's on the shoulders of our kids, and it just drives me crazy. But, um, but I think that, you know, to let them know, just, you know, stay awake to life, just, just don't have to be perfect all the time. That that's really, really important for them to know and believe, and to to help them foster that self confidence. And they're going to look in the mirror, and they're going to be focused on different things. We all are. We're human, but. Um, that doesn't mean that they need to feel any less loved. And so that's that's key. Well, from your lips to their ears, <laughs> and, it, and actually I'll broaden that out, not just to the children, but to know that mm -hmm. none of us need to be perfect because yeah. there really isn't any standard of perfection that any of us will ever achieve. Right. So I think that people listening to this will understand why it is that we love you so much, no, well, Emma. It's feelings mutual. <laughs> um, and I would like to know where they can um, talk to you or learn more yeah. about our Collector Maine. Absolutely. So um, my email is ewilson at ourcollectormaine.com, and my, our number there is 956-7105 at, um, at the Portland Art Gallery. So, Or we are at 154 Middle Street, and we're getting ready to expand. So... Come on in and visit. Or if you're in Kenny Bunk, we are right connected to the Grand Hotel. So, Excellent. We've been speaking with Emma Wilson, who is the 
Managing Director of Art Collector Maine, and who spends a significant amount of time around the Portland Art Gallery and the Gallery at the Grand. So stop on in, you connect bet. with her, and um, enjoy some art. And we'll, uh, we'll be continuing to talk to you in the future. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful. You've been listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 237, Life as Art. Our guests have included Eric Hopkins and Emma Wilson. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running travel food and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Life as Art show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Main Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, McPage, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, and Apothecary by Design. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Bellisle. For more information on our host production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's an exclusive look at a new song from my forthcoming record, Relentlessly Yours. This is Miss You Too. So good. I just can't seem to put this book